Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Hey, everybody. The only former U.S. senator currently on tour tour has been extended. Our 15-city tour has now become our 30-city tour. And the new cities are... Santa Cruz, California, Livermore, California, Bethlehem, PA, Terrytown, New York, Burlington, Vermont, Portland, Maine, Huntington, New York, Glenside, Pennsylvania, Santa Barbara, California, Buffalo, New York, Toronto, Canada, Madison, Wisconsin, Royal Oak, Michigan, Boston, Mass., Red Bank, New Jersey. Uh, you can go to alfranken.com for all the information on how to get tickets. Hope to see you there. Hey, everybody. If you're a uh, regular listener to this podcast, you know that occasionally I repeat one of my best conversations, one of the few that are any good at all. Now, we do at least 44 shows a year, and scientists tell us that means we have to repeat eight podcasts. This week, Michael Harriet. Michael, I, and I don't think he'd mind me saying this, is black. He's a senior writer for Root, which is either the oldest or most read online black newspaper or both. Uh, their slogan is, the blacker the content, the sweeter the truth. Michael and I uh, talked about race, systemic racism, for example, which, of course, is systemic in this country. We talk about critical race theory, uh, pretty serious stuff. But uh, Michael's funny. He, he's really funny. And that's my sweet spot, serious and uh, sometimes biting, but funny. And that's Michael Harriet. All right. Michael Harriet joins me. It is a great one, you know, for a change. The best way to learn a language? Immersion living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses have helped me learn real-life conversation in German. For example... Let's say you wanted to order soup with your dinner. Die Suppe würde mir auch gefallen. That means the soup. <laughs> that means that means I would also like the soup. And that way I get soup with dinner. 
Here's a special limited time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash franken. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash franken. Rules and restrictions may apply. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. I want to start off by asking you, did did you watch Biden's speech to the joint sessions and then did you watch Tim Scott's response? Yes, I watched both of them. And uh, I thought, you know, Biden, he gave a presidential speech. You know, one of the things that we forget about presidents and that the job of the president is that it is a job that really doesn't have as much power as we give it credit for having. You know, we think the president can manifest something in his mind and make it come true. And that's kind of not how it works. But I thought it was a a, a decent speech. And I also saw Tim Scott's speech. Uh, I I am actually from South Carolina. So, um, you know, I am familiar with Tim Scott. My mother lives probably 10, 15 minutes uh, from Tim Scott's, from where Tim Scott grew up in North Charleston. My mother lives in a little town right outside of North Charleston called Monk's Corner. So I am familiar with him. And uh, I thought, you know, that part where he said America is not a racist country was asinine. But I think, you know, one, one, of, the, one of the ways I explain it is that there is this very confined definition that a lot of people have of racism that allows them to believe that America is not a racist country. So for a lot of people, racism has to be intentional and malicious. And so regardless of the outcome, if they don't have the intent to harm, the the intentional idea to harm a person when they're doing something, then to them, it is not racist. And if you live by that confined definition of racism, then I guess you can say that America is not a racist country. Maybe. <laughs> well, well, let's get into that because uh, all of that, the predicate of that, then maybe you could say it's not a racist country. But before I do that, Kamala Harris, Vice President Kamala Harris, was asked a few days later, I guess, in response to that, is America a racist country? And I felt she was kind of on the spot because you're the vice president, you're the first, you know, black vice president of the United States, and your response, or <laughs> was record that response and then play it back. And she just said no, which I felt like she could have said more. She could have qualified. She didn't have to qualify the no or the yes. She could have responded in a different way. If you had been her, uh, how would you have responded? First, I would have said that the fact that you're asking me this question is kind of racist. First of all, like to ask me a question that is just 
something that another black guy said is weird, you know? Like, <laughs> you're a black lady, so how do you feel about what another black guy said? That's a weird thing in itself. And I hadn't thought of it that way, but that's why you're here. <laughs> okay, that's really funny. Go ahead. <laughs> and I probably would have answered it uh, in the same way that I just said, right? Like, if you have this narrow definition of racism, then maybe you can think that America is not a racist country. Now, you, the person asking me this question, are asking me that question probably with that narrow definition. So to you, America is probably not a racist country. <laughs> okay. See, that to me is... Uh, both uh, that would have been very diplomatic for her and also helpful for people. Right. right? And that would have gotten coverage. Right. I think it would have too. Uh, you know, I, I would have, you know, maybe given an allegory of something like, I don't like, I don't know, chocolate for instance. Right. But I know that most of the people in the country do like chocolate. So if you ask me if chocolate is a disgusting thing, a disgusting food, I would say no. I think it's just this disgusting thing. But as a representative of the United States of chocolate eaters, I am giving an answer that for this organization that I represent, <laughs> chocolate is not a disgusting thing. I I think the now answer it not as you as if you're her and you've been asked it. But here's the thing. I mean, because I have. Okay, for example, um, in the debates, uh, Trump and Biden, uh, I think it was in the debates, Trump was asked, uh, is there systemic racism in this country? Or at least it came, that term became an issue. And he would say no. And when I thought about it, I'd say, really? Okay, and I wanted to ask this question. When did it end then? Right. When did systemic racism end? What year? Was it 1964, the Civil Rights Bill? Well, no, because the 1965 Voting Rights Act. Was that it? When, what are you talking about? When, when, what are, <laughs> can we get a little bit deep, deeper than no? Right. You know, or, or, you know, you could say, well, for 72% of the percent of this country's life from uh from 1776 until the 1965 voting rights act or the 1964 civil rights act this country lived under slavery or jim crow so it was a racist country for 72 percent of the time now let's say america was a person and that person had killed someone would you say that person was a murderer even if he'd served his time and had gotten out of jail is that person a murderer Yes, because, you know, it doesn't mean that necessarily that he is going to murder someone, but it means that he is like the things that he have he has done is a murderer. And that's that's kind of how racism it is. It doesn't matter the intent. In fairness, the, the question was, is it systemically racist? It, is it so systemically racism? And had, there's no question right. that it has been. And you, that's funny that you accepted my 65 Voting Rights Act, which right. is uh, so, kind of ridiculous. So if, you, if you're asking, is it a racist country, right? So, or is it systemically or, racist? Or is it systemically I racist? Would, that's, I would ask, yeah. 
to for the person who asked that question to name an institution in America that doesn't have racial disparities. Let's cause we're gonna argue and go back and forth all day about what racism is and how you define racism, right? So if you talk about the criminal justice system. Well there there's no question. So how about the financial system? Right? So how about the political system? Uh do black people have access to the polls that white people have? So how about, you know, any take any institution in America the military. Right. Let, let's talk about the armed right. services. Uh, I think that's the most. And I was really, you know, uh, taken with the fact that there are a number of white military people who were in, involved in January 6th, who were involved in that. Because my observation, and this is just from doing a lot of USO tours, I did seven of them. So it's not really, <laughs> but it, it seemed like the most integrated the mo- the most functionally not racist or organization i've seen right and that is also true so two things can be true at the same time and i oh, and yeah, i think yeah, 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 i think yeah. one of the things that we have to dismiss is the notion that being around black people or being in an organization that is integrated and diverse somehow dismisses or wipes out racism because if it is in every fabric of our society and every institution in our society just by the fact that this one population of people in america is more diverse than the other populations doesn't mean that it is fenced off from the rest of american society of course not of course not and if you look at any law firm Right. right If you look at uh, any investment banking, uh, Heather McGee in her book, The Sum of Us, uh, brings up a, a perfect example for me, which is that if, you know, they've done research on this, and if you apply for a job and your name is Demetrius, you get called back for an interview less than, you know, Steve. Or Andy. Right, right, uh, and it's, which is a, some of us is a great book, and I've uh, talked to Heather McGee about it. But you know, my only qualm with the book is that I wish that I had written it. It's a beautiful book. It is. It is um, the way she makes it personal, the way she explains things uh, as an economist, and my background is as an economist also. And this is one of the things that I used to teach a class called called race as an economic construct that used the principles of economics to teach race and the history of racism in America. And so I'm just jealous of of Heather McGee's book. That's it. You see this. Okay. So that's just getting jobs, right? (laughs) You know, that's, uh, and you still see that, uh, we're changing in many cases for the better. There are elite schools that are going like, holy crap, we really, we just had white people here and we're going to change that, right? Some people are beginning to get some enlightenment, I think. I think so too. I think, uh, you know, one of the the things that, as I said before, we're moving in the right direction 
But I think that can also mean that we're not in the place that we want to be, right? The, even when we talk about the founders, they acknowledge that it's, a, you know, we want to make a more perfect union. So to say that America is racist is not anti-American. It is actually acknowledging the thought of the founders that we got to keep creating this thing that is more perfect. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and to me, I would say if you had asked me, like, after Tim Scott said, you know, America is not a racist country, my response to that would be, yeah, we're pretty racist. <laughs> I mean, that's that would be my response. It'd be, I don't know how you're defining that, but, you know, if you're talking about where do kids get their their K through twelve education? Yeah. Right, that's about economics, and the economics of that is if you go to elementary school and high school in a predominantly black neighborhood in in urban America, you probably don't have the same high school same experience as maybe someone in a very wealthy suburb. Right, right, and. As an economist and as just as a person who lived in America, I'm often careful to point that out that like when we bring up those statistics, a lot of people assume that, okay, we're talking about a small percentage of black kids who go to this segregated schools or, or unequal schools. And I have to point out that 60% of non-white children go to schools <laughs> that are majority black. Right. So it's it's most black people, most Hispanic people go to schools that are not as good as white schools. White schools uh, get on average two thousand six hundred and sixty six dollars per student more than a predominantly black or Latino school district. And that's what we're talking about when you're saying they go to a predominantly black school. You're, you're talking about. Funding. Right. Right. And you're also talking about. Uh, the legacy of, look, the chances are that your parents went to graduate school if you're in a school that's 60% black is, is lower than if you're in Chevy Chase, Maryland. Right. It just is. And, you know, I, I remember, you know, I was putting my grandson to bed. I was very fortunate during COVID to be uh, sort of in the bubble with my uh, two of my grandkids. And he, I remember he we're reading a book, reading a book. He's seven years old and it has the org. It's a Dr. Seuss book and it has the drawings of the organs. And he says to me, um, grandpa, I'd have to assume that there's some kind of tube between the kidneys and the bladder. <laughs> and I went, all I could think of is, oh, both his parents went to <laughs> went to graduate school, right. <laughs> and 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 there's some data which is that a kid whose parents went to graduate school will hear three million more words by the time they're five than a kid whose parents didn't go to college, and that is an unbelievable advantage and that has to do with legacy going way back right it? it does it does it has to do with first of all you know most of those schools those graduate schools those colleges we couldn't go to until 
after I was born, right? After you and I were born, right? So as it is, we had Paul Tuff on, who's written about sort of the elite schools, and they're still it's still way biased toward alums, uh, toward people can afford SAT tutors. I mean, you just look at who is going to those schools, which, you know, these schools like Princeton and Harvard, they have endowments where if you can't afford to go, boom, you get the full boat. Right. So that on that, on that score, they're great. But <laughs> you look at who their students are, and there's a, a difference between, say, black, Latino, and, say, Asian. Yeah, I, and I've written about this, and I write about it from the economic standpoint. So if you look at this, so there's a great study that came out, I think, in 2019 that uh, measures what they call ALDC. So there's four different ways that people kind of get exceptions into getting into Harvard. Uh, this one specifically looked at Harvard, right? So if you are a child of a person who works at Harvard, you can get an exception. If you are uh, an athlete, you can get an exception. Well, it's not an exception. It means that you're held to slightly, right? not exactly the same uh, high SATs or right. that kind of thing. Right? And, and it, it, what happens is we think, well, those exceptions go to my black and minority students when actually they don't. The vast majority of people at elite schools who get, for instance, athletic scholarships are white. Right? We think of the football and the basketball team and forget about the lacrosse team and the soccer team and the crew team and the golf team and the tennis team who that's disproportionately <laughs> white. And then, you know, the, the staff and the professors are disproportionately white and the people who gave big donations, which is which who also get an exception are disproportionately white. And so what you have is a small group of black people and, and Latino people and, and Asian people who got in on what white people call affirmative action. But those students are still among the highest performers in their school districts, at their schools and you got a bunch of mediocre white kids who just got in because they knew somebody. And what happens is the excellence of those Asian and black and Latino students, they supplement the school's reputation for the white kids who just knew somebody. So it's not that just that those schools are disproportionately well, white is that those white students who graduate get the benefit from having the smartest black and Latino and Asian kids attend the school because those students worked harder and, and the white students just knew somebody. Well, you know, it depends exactly what we're talking about. It's, it's hard to get into Harvard if you're anybody. Right. I mean, le legacies it helps. Yes. Those kids, it's crazy now. Right. It's, cr it's crazy hard. And, and they could take an entire class of just, Kids have got eight hundreds on right, and, <laughs> and, and the other thing I, so, I, I often point out is like you're thinking more of like Trinity, right? So and the other thing I, th I also often talk about is like if you're going like I think there's a a misunderstanding of how affirmative action in those schools work, any school, not just the most elite ones, and that they think that if a black kid got in. They got in because they didn't achieve in high school. And what it is, is let's say it's the University of Texas, which is a great case as the Amy Fisher case. The, if the standard SAT score that, that for students is a 1200, 
the black kids still got 1200 on their SATs. It's just that they didn't compete up against the white students who got the 1300, right? But if you look at it holistically, a black kid who attended an underfunded school with what statistics say had smaller libraries, teachers use fewer words, they have fewer resources, and they got a little bit less, but still above the standard of the school. But they got a little bit less than the white kid who got SAT tutors, uh, who went to the best schools, whose parents went to graduate school. They kind of, even though the SAT score might be a little less, they kind of achieved more, right? Absolutely. Let me give you, uh, I mentioned Paul Tuff's book, and he was a guest on this podcast. And it's a really interesting book and interview. But they did a thing. What they did was... Uh, and I mentioned Trinity because of this. So one year they got a new, uh, admissions director who had gone to an inner city school and did not get into a great college, but then graduate school got into like Berkeley and then got his PhD at Harvard. Now he's, and he said, we're not going to have SATs and ACTs. We're just not going to have them. We're going to do that blind. And so as a result, he picked a different class. Now, they still, because Trinity doesn't have the kind of endowment that Princeton and Harvard does, they still had to take some kids because of money. Right. <laughs> they needed the money. But so they get this class. And because of that, U.S. News and World Report, because the, they don't have the SATs to judge by, they lower their ranking. So they go from like 34th in the U.S. News and World Report ranking to 43rd. Okay. And so now the, the trustees at Trinity are going, are, are freaking out because basically college admissions directors at high schools now tell you, apply to a crap load of schools. There's a uniform, uh, you know, uh, application, uh, application, mm-hmm. and then go to the one that's highest ranked on the U.S. Right. <laughs> report. And then you're continually ranked at the school by how low a percent you can, of uh, kids you admit. So now the trustees are freaking out. The faculty there, the faculty wrote the trustees and said, please don't change this. This class is so much better. These kids are so creative. These kids are so smart. These don't, don't do it. And of course, it was a much ra- more racially diverse class. And yeah, you're right. Yeah. A eh, kid can get SAT training up the wazoo and raise his scores by 200 points. Big friggin' deal. Right. So it's a, it's, and I know this is going, it's deep theoretical stuff, but it's the thing that, uh, theoretical physicists and, uh, call like when we believe that the, the measuring of a thing affects the thing. Heisenberg. Right. That's the Heisenberg. Principle. Right. So, so because, we know the S. I uh, the S- did well on my SATs. <laughs> yeah. The SAT. <laughs> the SAT doesn't really measure anything except your parents' wealth and what, how good of a school you went to. But when we use it to rank these schools, then it perpetuates that same disparity in ranking, right? So the kids who, the more racially diverse college classes, they get ranked lower because they didn't perform as well on the SAT, which is already biased, right? So 
this is some of the things that we're talking about when we go back to the original question of is America a racist country? Uh, I remember once I was working like at a boat, a place that built boats in my hometown. Right. It was uh, and I just happened to have conversation with the guy who owned it. And he asked me, why was this there a perception in our town that his company was racist? And so I was raised in a town where there were two high schools, a black high school and a white high school. And they were basically just, uh, of course, remnants of segregation and they were neighborhood schools. And so the white high school had a career academy that was partially funded by his company. And if you worked in his career track at that company, you would almost automatically get a job at this boat company. The black school didn't have it. So his intention might not have been to give white kids a better chance to get employed at his company. But the result was that he had a racial disparity because white kids had a better chance to get hired at his company. And it doesn't. And my point is that sometimes the intention doesn't matter. The outcome matters because it is impossible Mm -hmm. to measure what someone has in their heart. It is the how we're, how their feelings and how their actions manifest themselves in the real world in relation to others that determines whether something is racist or not. Now, when you said that to the guy, did he go, oh, <laughs> and then he just go, oh, I get it. Yeah. Or, yeah. Okay, good. Did he open a, a little, did, did he open the yeah. same program yeah, so at, he just, at the black school? So what he did is just he halved his his funding between the two schools. And now not only is it one of the most diverse companies in the area, but it jumped up in the standings on boat manufacturers. Now his boats are considered better because he, he's just had a more diverse group of employees. In other words. Oh, man, Michael, you made a difference. So in other words, so when you have one group of people who all learn the same thing, trying to figure out a problem, they're all going to come up with the same answer. But when you have a bunch of different people attacking that problem from different perspectives, they get a bunch of solutions and then they can choose the best solution. And that's why diversity matters, not for some egalitarian principle of, oh, well, let's just be not racist because it's better for society. It actually works. It makes the thing that you're making better. Well, this is what Heather's book was about, which is basically that white people are sold that anything that's good for black people takes away from them. Right. There's zero zero sum sum principle. Yeah. And the fact is, is that we all do better when we all do better. And that's exactly that boat company. Yes. Yeah. All right. We're going to take a little break. We'll be right back with Michael Harriet. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders, while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car or a house. It's the four wheels that get you where you're going and the four walls that welcome you home. When you combine auto and home insurance with Amica, we'll help protect it all. 
more you cover, the more you can save. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. Okay, we're back with uh, Michael Harriet, senior writer for TheRoot.com. So there's a couple of things I wanted to ask you. You wrote a terrific article about the Tulsa massacre or the Black massacre in, in Tulsa a century ago. I wanted to ask you about that and about why really did we just hear about this or most Americans just hear about, really? Oh, wow, that, that's bad. Whoa, I didn't know that. And then the other ones, there must be, there, there's other. And also, we massacred Indians in uh, Minnesota. I wasn't, my family was in Krakow. I mean, we were in Europe. And that's why I, we shouldn't pay reparations. <laughs> <laughs> that's my, and I want to get to that. I want to get to reparations and sort of this idea that if you were in Krakow until, <laughs> or in Belarus or wherever your family was from until uh, 1902, well, then I had nothing to do with slavery. And uh, I didn't benefit at all from uh, racism uh, since 1902 because I'm white and didn't have any advantages. And so I shouldn't pay any reparations, but I tell you who should. People own slaves who you can prove on. I'm not, I want to talk about that, too. Right. So I guess we could start with Tulsa, right? Um, and, and either way and, and these massacres and kind of tie them together, right? So Tulsa is, is definitely not the worst one or the only one. Wow. It isn't the worst one. No, uh, in 1920, the Thibodeau massacre was probably the worst one. But again, we're still discovering a lot of these massacres. So uh, Thibodeau was a, this was after the Civil War, it was sugarcane plantation in uh, Thibodeau, Louisiana, right? So the black workers, mostly black workers who worked on these sugar plantations were trying to organize a union. And, uh, you know, of course, the plantation owners who had just come out of slavery were against it. So at a, a meeting for black organizers, uh, the paramilitary forces of what we would call Klansmen now, uh, they had a bunch of different names in Louisiana, the White League, the League of the uh, White Camellia. Well, they attacked these workers and we kind of still don't know how many were killed uh, because they killed, you know, the people weren't just from one town. So it wasn't like Tulsa in that, you know, they burned a section of town. They just killed people. And then once the word got out in newspapers, more white supremacist groups started coming down and just started hunting people for like a week. So it was one of the biggest black massacres in history. And uh, so it lasted for the, I mean, it went through the entire county. Some people say 300. Some people say as many as a thousand were killed. Uh, the bodies were burned and buried in shallow graves. So we don't know how many people really died. And there are stories like this all over the country. Oscarville in uh Georgia, right outside of Atlanta, is one of my favorites. Well, not favorite, but is one of the craziest stories because so there's a lake called Lake Lanier that has a bunch of resorts around it in Georgia. And every summer, a bunch of white people die drowning in that lake. And the legend is that there are the ghosts of black people who are 
enacting their revenge because years ago, Oscarville, Georgia was a majority black town. They had this motor speedway, a bunch of black businesses, kind of like Tulsa. And black man was accused of raping a white woman. Uh, Her grandchildren say it was definitely a false accusation. And they slaughtered the black people and and the rest of them out of town. And then a couple of years later, they came up with this idea to flood this black town by building a dam and providing Atlanta with hydroelectric power. So they basically flooded the town. And so under the town is still this intact entire black city. And sometimes when there's a drought, you can see like the tops of smokestacks and the motor speedway peek up from the lake. Boy, that's eerie. (laughs) Right. And (laughs) that is the shining. That is really Really worth uh, making. I'm going to write that down. I'm going to make a movie. <laughs> make a movie. Make uh, a movie and it's it's uh, interesting. There was 57 boating fatalities and 145 drownings between 99 and 2018. <laughs> so it's like, <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. So, That's so the movie. A, like they still go swimming. That's there. Act two. Like this big res- <laughs> resort area, like. The 128 boating accidents in the last three years alone. Uh, you know, there's this kind of legend there. Like, if you're black, you know not to go swimming in Lake Lanier because. <laughs> <laughs> and, so, and so what's funny about it, it's always been this kind of black legend. Maybe there's like, I would check out who, who owns the bars around there because <laughs> maybe there's like a lot of black guys on bars. Yeah. Just go, no, have another drink. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then right before you go. And swimming. then get in your boat. Yeah. I, I, yeah. Or right before. Yeah. Or eat up. Yeah. So. <laughs> so these kinds yeah. of stories like, like Tulsa, like the Thibodeau massacre are, are kind of well known because black people pass these stories amongst each other. And these are the things that they don't teach in schools. Right. And so. These kinds of, of, you know, black people are aware of not just these atrocities, but these kind of systemic issues that we were talking about earlier that are pervasive in American history. And that's why a lot of people, black people, support reparations, because we kind of know more than white people about racism in America. And, I, and, and it's also important to point out that black people don't think white people should pay reparations. They think America should pay reparations. So it's not like black people's taxes wouldn't be taken. It's like, it's just like the national deficit. All of us are responsible, even though we don't all benefit from the stuff that America uh, did or some of the debts that America owes. And one of the the historical things, when we talk about Brown versus Board of Education, for instance, right? And this is one of the things that I'd like to point out about reparations. So let's forget about slavery. Let's take slavery off to the board. It was legal. It was constitutional. The Constitution ruled out, uh, I mean, uh, made slavery illegal. So let's take slavery off the board. And let's talk about from 1865 until now, right? When black people were working, were paying taxes. And for most of that period, we couldn't attend the same schools. We just talked about how even when we could attend schools, black schools were underfunded. So we were, in essence, paying to educate white children, to make America better for white people. When you talk about the New Deal, that came out of Americans' taxes 
after black people were freed from slavery. And our money was used to build an entire white middle class. Yeah, actually, a lot of people don't think about this or realize it, that there were a lot of concessions made to get white Southern votes from the New Deal. Like, who would not get Social Security, right? Right. Who wouldn't get Social Security? We can go into the history of redlining when, uh, you know, banks were forbidden for from giving loans on homes that weren't in white neighborhoods. And so all of that money, all those black people's taxes went to white people. And so reparations, in a sense, could not just be for slavery, but for the money that black people invested in America and didn't get a return. If if America was a stock, we bought those stocks and white people got the dividends. And again, black people aren't asking white people to pay for those, because if you came from Krakow, as you said, in 1902, you still got to attend a good white school in a white neighborhood that may have. That's why, that's why my argument before right. kind of falls apart. Right. So, <laughs> so why, every why white person <laughs> benefited from the labor and the taxes of all the black people. And all black people are saying in the reparations argument is that, hey, we, we don't want something special. We want the things that our parents and our grandparents didn't get because a lot of the people who are just middle class people now benefited from their grandparents and their parents labor and from black people's labor and black people didn't have that opportunity. Okay. Now do you think I'm, you know, I've been, uh, there's been a lot of writing lately about, what happened in 2016 and how when Obama got elected and got reelected, we kind of went like, whew, it's over. Racism is done. Ah, phew. <laughs> and, and, then, and then we saw that, oh, my goodness, there's a backlash. Wow. And uh, that's Trump. And uh, there, this, this country now is just crazy and the Republican Party has just become mad, um, crazy mad. So when will we have a serious discussion? How many decades from now? I mean, we need to start now, but or we need to have started, and we have. Uh, when, when do we really have a real chance of seriously addressing that? I, I think we're starting to address it now. Um, you know, one of the things is that the reparations movement is not new. It started after the Civil War. Uh, you know, when we talk, look at the discussions in Congress, the group from which people were selected to address that congressional subcommittee in COBRA was around since the 60s, right? Cali Guy House started the Mutual Benefit Fund, which was trying to give uh, reparations for ex-slaves, uh, what she called pensions for ex-slaves. No, what, what you, eight, 1860s? In the 1860s, right? Okay. And, until she was jailed for mail fraud, because that's what always happens. So uh, I think we just have to keep talking about it, just as we did with the civil rights movement, right? We didn't start talking about civil rights, and then it all of a sudden happened. It snowballed into a thing where it was unignorable, and then we had to do something about it. So I think to keep the conversation going is actually doing something in the hopes that one day we will reach the conclusion that, hey, man, we got to just fix these 
uh, wealth disparities in black and brown communities. Yeah, maybe we should take the value of 40 acres and a mule and just compound it with compound interest. Yeah. Uh, it's, 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 it's valuable. Is that a formula? Uh, well, so I have a, a, a different formula, <laughs> but that, I mean, my formula is, is not exclusive. I, I'm, I'm willing to accept whatever formula someone comes up with. But I think like, addressing those disparities, you know, can go. I, my mother, uh, actually, and when I mentioned that place, Monk's Corner, so there are people in, in the surrounding areas of Charleston who actually got their 40 acres in a mule and kind of still live on them. My mother lives on a 40 acre and a mule plot right now as we're talking. Has it been subdivided? Uh, well, it's been subdivided amongst the family, but the f- entire family, like my sister's husband's entire family. And they, you know, you build a house here. And so some of those places still exist. Must be nice. Yeah, yeah, it is. That's what we say in Minnesota, by the way. Right. That's the passive aggressive right. thing you say. Must be nice. Right. So when I think about that, right, it's not an abstract idea. I don't have to look at, for instance, a white family whose grandmother built the house. And then the, when they were, you know, 80 years old, they passed it down to their grandchildren or their parents might have taken out a loan against the house's value to send them to college. And then that child got to get out of college with no debt. Right. So those are the things that you can look at to see how this wealth disparity expands throughout generations because of the things that we did years ago. And I can see them specifically because, you know, I have nieces and nephews who like have houses and who are educated, who don't have student loans because they got the benefit of something that happened 150 years ago. Yep. And of course, in Tulsa, in the, was it the Greenwood section right. of Tulsa, it was called the Black Wall Street and it had these businesses that were thriving and was a prosperous community. I think we, I think most of my listeners have now heard about the Tulsa massacre. You wrote a, a terrific article about it, uh, but that wealth wasn't compounded. That was lost. Right, right. And, yeah. and Tulsa is an egregious case, but it's also important to point out that Tulsa wasn't the only community like that, right? Tulsa, during the time where it was thriving, was probably the least known of these what we call black Wall Streets. It was there's Black Wall Street in Durham, North Carolina, in the Haiti community of Durham, North Carolina, in Richmond, Virginia, in in in, in Bowley, Oklahoma. A bunch of them were in Oklahoma just because Oklahoma kind of started as a state where black people ran to, thinking that there was going to be an all black state. So, really? Some of the yeah, some uh, some of those weren't dismantled by massacres, but they were all dismantled like they drive like one of the easiest ways to do it and you see this throughout history was just to put a freeway or a a highway through the black community right well we did that yeah minnesota and dispossess them of of their land and so uh you know that happened in richmond that happened in uh in 
Durham in the Haiti district. Uh, the Haiti district in Durham was probably the most successful of them. And it was also where the first sit-in took place. So Tulsa was by no means like this extraordinary case. Uh, I think Black people know about it because of the egregious massacre. And, you know, it was something that was commonly known among Black people even before, like, you know, years for years. Like, There's a rapper uh, called The Game whose record label was called Black Wall Street. And nobody ever asked them because like all the black people knew what it meant. <laughs> and then really? okay. we just, you know, America as a whole just kind of start paying attention a couple years ago or this year. I want to ask you about critical race theory and, and what's taught in schools and what's being resisted uh, by, you know, the usual suspects. Right. And the 16, 19 curriculum and, and those things. Right. So let's, let's start with critical race theory. So uh, there's this misunderstanding. I, I've, it's always important to point out that the 1619 project isn't critical race theory. It is a product of critical race theory, just like teaching. Like uh, if you have a computer class or a class about uh I don't know, Microsoft Word in your school. You're not teaching computer engineering. Critical race theory is a complex thing that produced the 1619 Project. But to teach the 1619 Project is not teaching critical race theory any more than to teach someone how to use Microsoft Word is teaching computer engineering. So critical race theory was founded in the 80s by uh you know the one of the persons who is credited with being the creator is Derek Bell so he had this idea he was teaching a law school and he had this idea that hey if we're going to use the law to dismantle racism then we have to understand how the law has manifested racism so if you're looking at for instance the constitution you have to understand that you know, a quarter of the people who signed it were slave owners. So if the people who created this country, who created this thing, had racist tendencies, um, wherever, however you want to count slave owning, then it makes sense that Amer this racism manifests itself in the law. And we have to look at that through the lens. If we look at the law through the lens of race, if we look at America through the lens of race, if we look at uh, history through the lens of race, then we will see how we got to be where we are today. So in American schools, we learn history through the lens of whiteness. And this is something that I didn't realize until a couple of years ago because I was homeschooled until I was 13 years old. And so I learned history just in my mama's house. And so it, I only had a revelation a couple years ago when I realized that, oh, so we learn about George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and the noble founders. And then like years later, we learn about slavery and racism and Jim Crow. And so it's hard to reconcile those two things, these noble founders and this idea of racism being pervasive if the foundation is built on the idea that these guys are good guys, right? So what the 1619 Project would say is that America at its beginning was almost a failure until slaves showed up. 
right? Until they got free labor. And there's no other way to explain it, how America became an economic superpower so fast, right? Other than they had 4 million people working for free, right? So if you explain America that way, then you begin, you don't necessarily hate America. You just see it from an objective perspective, right? You don't say, well, these people, George Washington hated black people. Nah, but you have to, you understand that, oh, I understand why he was protecting this institution that we now consider racist because it was a way to build this country into a, an economic superpower. And slavery at the root was white supremacists because white people were the only ones who got the benefit of it. And so people have conflated the 1619 with critical race theory, I think, because it just has the word race in it. But no teacher is teaching this complex legal and social theory to sixth graders because it's just too hard to understand, <laughs> right? Right. But it's easy for, you know, Ron DeSantis to stand in front of a bunch of white people or to go on Fox News and say, it's critical race theory is teaching your kids to hate America. Now, <laughs> it is possible that if you know the real roots of racism and you know how racism has manifested itself throughout American history, you might say this country is kind of racist, right? That might be a byproduct of just learning the truth. Right. Like if you have been bitten by a dog or if you know, hey, this dog has bitten 17 people before I reached out my hand to pet it. You might be like, oh, man, this this dog is kind of crazy. So the 1619 project or the curriculum mm -hmm. is just teaching our history. Right. It's just teaching our history. Now, a lot of people object to the perception that, well, you know, the premise of the 1619 project was like like for black people for black people that's important to remember that america began in 1619 well if you go into a regular history class we teach american history from the point where white people showed up so ask a native american if the regular history of america is racist or it teaches you how to hate native americans because it starts with when white people showed up right and that is the point, right? A perspective in history that we've always been taught has been the white perspective. And to say that the 1619 Project is racist is to also say that all of the other history views are racist because they only start from when white people showed up. Yeah, well, usually you know, people say America began in 1776. Right. But actually, if you're taking that tack, it would have begun in, in, in 1783. Is, is that right? Well, uh, it, it, it depends on, again. <laughs> it depends on the Constitution. I, I don't know. Yeah. But, when, but when the we point signed. is, it, 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 we, we, did, we did have uh, the colonies. We did have, uh, and we had slavery for a long time. Yeah. Long, long time. Well, thank you, uh, Michael. Um, uh, keep up the, the great work. Everybody should be reading The Root. You'll learn a lot, and you'll have a good time. That's a lot. A lot of kids write that from camp. I've, I've learned a lot, and I've had a good time, Mom and Dad. But uh, you will if you read the root and Michael Harriet. Uh, thank you, Michael. Thank you for having My pleasure. me. Pleasure. Well, I, I hope you enjoyed uh, listening. 
That beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again next week. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. The early 2000s was a wild time for reality TV. There seemed to be an endless supply of shows that delivered entertainment for us, but trauma for children. I'm Misha Brown, the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each week on The Big Flop, comedians join me to chronicle the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? We recently looked behind the scenes of what was really going on at Abby Lee Miller's dance studio. Abby's biggest misstep wasn't screaming nonsensical catchphrases or throwing chairs on television, but instead, she was choreographing financial fraud in plain sight. Join me to break down all the wild details of Abby Lee Miller's story. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus.